Welcome to Life on the Land, a Grazy Herb podcast telling the stories of women living across regional, rural and remote Australia. I'm Sammy O'Brien, your host for the season. Our guest today is Delene Ray. Delene grew up in the small outback town of Birdsville in far western Queensland. On the edge of the Simpson Desert, it's host to some of the biggest events on the outback Queensland calendar, such as the Birdsville races, the Big Red Bash, and is home to one of the outback's most iconic watering holes, the Birdsville Pub. Of course, all of this a huge draw card for travellers looking for the true blue outback experience. But what was it like growing up in a town like this? One of six kids, Delene describes her somewhat idyllic childhood, the quieter times in town, and her memories of being a kid in such a remote and isolated location. I would describe Delene as a quiet achiever, yet one who has achieved so much. Starting her career as a radiographer in regional Australian hospitals and then in the United Kingdom, she went on to spend three seasons in Europe as a tour guide before joining OBE Organic in 2003, where she is now the Managing Director of Australia's oldest organic beef exporting company. Just a heads up, this episode of Life on the Land discusses issues of mental health and suicide. If you or someone you know is in need of help, you can call Lifeline anytime on 13 11 14. Nadeline, I wanted to start from the beginning because you had quite a unique childhood. What was it like growing up in such an iconic town like Birdsville? Well, I guess Birdsville was my home back then. um, I was born in 1975 uh, and I went to boarding school when I was 11. So I guess I can speak to the first 11 years. We had a thriving community with lots of children in it. So we had 20 children in the local school. There was one classroom with 20 kids in it. Uh, that's the only childhood that I ever knew. So um, there wasn't a pool. So uh, one of the positives or negatives uh, out of my time in Birdsville is that I'm not a very good swimmer. I learned to swim in a billabong, but I actually can't, <laughs> I can't do the strokes that normal people can do because they grew up around pools. And I get terribly motion sick and I blame my parents for that because I never went anywhere near the ocean until I was in my teens, I think. So I get seasick looking at a boat, (laughs) but I have other qualities that were, that I got from a childhood in the bush. What was your fondest memory of your childhood? So there's a lot of freedom. We got to after school and on the weekends, we got to go out to the billabong or out to the river on our own. And I don't think kids get to do that much these days. My brothers had motorbikes. Uh, the girls didn't back then, but we got to ride on the back of the motorbikes with our, our brothers. We got to explore the the channel country, the river systems, the plants, the birds, the animals. So I guess it's about freedom. Uh, and then I went to boarding school in Adelaide when I was 11. With a class of just 20 kids and you were one of six, were most of your family in the class at the same time? <laughs> Well, I'm actually uh, 12 years older than my youngest sister, so I had already gone to boarding school when mum and dad had the last two of the six children. But I guess as you get older, your memories fade and what we rely on are photographs and it's really beautiful to look back at the photos of the Birdsville State School and see the people that we went to school with and where we've all ended up in the world. And interestingly enough, many people end up back in Birdsville in some way, shape or form. They're leaders in our community, uh, they're 
the backbone of other communities around Australia. So I think the childhood was very unique. It's been described to me as being backgrounded in the channel country. I love what you just said that lots of people end up going back because I know that for the Birdsville races, it is so nice to see that I mean, you guys all go back for that, obviously, but it does seem like that's almost like a reunion for everyone each year, um, those big races. And it's, yeah, it's really lovely. You can really feel the sense of community. Yeah, the horse races are, are very famous. They've been going for over 100, and 100 years. Uh, these days, there's about four to 5,000 tourists that, that make their way to Birdsville. It's a destination. So there are people that want to experience um, the atmosphere in the pure outback or the, the thoroughbred horse races, but there's also people that have a goal in life to get out to Birdsville, to go to Big Red, uh, to drive on the dirt roads to get there, to to camp freely, to have campfires. And people always talk about the big sky. So the friendly people on the way out there and also once they get there, it's the big sky, the remoteness and the joy that people have when they arrive at their destination. It is that big sky country. That's one of my favourite things about being there. It's just, it's like nothing you ever experience in any of the cities. It's so beautiful. Now, your dad owned the famous Birdsville pub and you also had the general store. Your mum and dad had the general store for years. What was it like you know, being part of a community that had one of Queensland's most iconic pubs. Once I turned 18, I certainly uh, put my fair share of money over the bar. <laughs> People find it hard to believe now. I'm a bit of a teetotaler, teetotaler, but I certainly did drink a lot of Bundaberg rum between 18 and about 30 at the Birdsville Hotel. But when I was a teenager, I actually worked really hard during the school holidays to to make money. And my two jobs were cleaning the motel rooms at the Birdsville Hotel and also working in the shop for mum and dad. So I think what I learnt, I guess, is a is service because these communities, in season, there's lots of people to help out, but in off-season, you, you do need to rally the community to sort of do all the jobs that need to be done. Someone needs to clean the, the hotel rooms, someone needs to clean the toilets, someone needs to wash the sheets, and uh, so I'm... I enjoy doing that. I'm actually heading out to the Channel Country Ladies' Day soon to speak at that event and I've offered to volunteer. So I'll do my 45-minute presentation, but for the rest of the weekend, I'll be a volunteer to clean toilets and clean tables. And that's something I think I learned early on in life. Oh, you're a good woman. Now, did everyone always want to come home with you on holidays? Yeah, I guess it back then... Uh, Yes, it, it is a long way. So it's about 1,600 kilometres west of Brisbane. It's about 1,200 kilometres north of Adelaide. Uh, the only two ways you can get there really is to drive or go on a commercial air, aircraft. And to drive to Birdsville from Brisbane takes about two and a half days uh, of nonstop driving and flying is a bit quicker, but it's quite expensive. So people always knew that we were from the outback, but it's also a very long way from anywhere. Now, Delene, when you were around 20, so you'd long moved away, your world was completely turned upside down. Can you tell me a little bit about that time in your life? Yeah, so I was one of six children. I was a twin, had a twin brother, Dion. Uh, when we were 20, he was, I was at university in Adelaide doing a Bachelor of Applied Science in Medical Radiations, and I was actually um, on a in Broken Hill working as a student at the time and my brother was a helicopter pilot and he was en route from Windora to one of our stations called Cadillo Downs and unfortunately he 
crashed the helicopter or the helicopter crashed and he died in that accident. So we went from being a, a very close family of six children to uh, five uh, and it was the first time our family had ever experienced death, death in our family. We'd never lost anyone close, uh, all of a, and I guess I lost my my twin brother. Did that change the way you saw the world or did that alter your trajectory in life at that point? Immediately it probably altered my younger brother's life, Anthony. He was at university and he uh, decided not to continue his studies and to come back and help mum and dad. My return to the family business didn't happen for a decade. I went to work at, I continued working at Broken Hill Base Hospital and also Toowoomba Base Hospital and then I went to the UK for a couple of years. Uh, And then I became a tour guide in Europe for three years and I, fair to say, I drank my way around Europe. I had an awesome time and then I remember dad tapping me on the shoulder. I was in my early 20s at the time and and dad sort of said, "Uh, I think you've spent enough time enjoying yourself, drinking, it's time to come home and learn about the family business and so I came to work at OB Organic, which is the, I guess, the arm of the business. So we're a family-owned business that exports organic beef over all over the world. But I was one of the first employees back then. Dad doesn't remember that way. He doesn't remember the tap on the shoulder. But um, there was a reason why I came back to Australia. And I think it was an understand. And that potentially wouldn't have happened if my brother hadn't passed away because as is typical in family businesses, it's usually the son that sort of mm-hmm. takes takes over the family business. So after you did those few seasons as a travel guide, um, you, I guess, came full circle back to the world of ag. Um, you've been with Obi now for 20 years and you're the managing director and you've been in that position for six years now. Can you tell me exactly what your role entails? So we're still a family-owned business, which includes my family and other farmers. I lead a small team of eight staff. And what we do is we, whilst we don't own land and livestock, we process around 200 animals per week. Those animals are processed at a facility on the east coast of Australia and we sell that, that box beef around the world. So some of it stays in Australia and some of it goes to destinations like Hong Kong or California or Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. And I guess you could say that we do the logistics, we do the sales, we organise the flights, we organise the containers, we organise putting the the cartons where they need to be around the world. And then we also do the marketing. So we're telling a pretty unique story. Australia has the largest area of certified organic land in the world. And the majority of that is from the large pastoral assets that are certified organic in Australia's channel country. And so the story is really unique. There's nowhere else in the world that has the vegetation that we have in the Channel Country. That means the cattle that graze there feast on about 250 species of native herbs and grasses. And that story is very compelling to customers around the world. What, what, what What's also important to customers is our beef is free from. So it's free from chemicals. It's free from hormones. And in Australia, Australian consumers have the luxury of not having to worry about that. When we go to Coles or Woolworths or Aldi or your local butcher, you're pretty confident that the the meat you eat is not going to make you sick. Whereas 
that's not the case in other countries around the world. They don't necessarily have confidence that they eat, if they're going to buy beef, that it's beef. It could be something else, um, that it hasn't been given hormones. And so what we find in our export markets around the world is that people choose Australian beef and certainly Australian organic beef because they perceive it to be clean and safe and perhaps more cleaner and more safer than the other protein that they can buy. So do you find that the quality and consistency of your product, because all the producers involved with OB beef are in channel country, is that something that runs through all of your products? They have to be from that that region? So most of our cattle uh, are sourced from the channel country sobe has been going for about 25 years and certainly in the last two years, 100% of our cattle have come from the channel country. What's important is that the farms are certified organic. Um, what's important is that we continue to tell a story that our product is clean, green and safe. And what does make our product unique is the flavour. So grass-fed beef has a different flavour to grain-fed beef. It has a different eating quality and that's what people are looking for. When you talk to customers, the the customers that buy grain-fed beef typically are not the same customers that buy grass-fed or organic beef. They're just looking for two different eating experiences. What have you found with the overseas consumer that's been the biggest surprise to you, I guess, you know, that we take for granted here? I think what's been really interesting is we have a sustainability story to tell And I think we tell it pretty well. We talk about our four key pillars, people, animals, environment and product. And under our people pillar, we tell people about the progress we're making towards Indigenous reconciliation. And what's really interesting is how that message resonates in specific markets around the world, um, particularly in America and Canada. So we call all these points that we make to customers, unique selling points or USPs. And let's say we've got 10. So there might be grass-fed, certified organic, 250 species of native herbs and grasses, family farmed. We're committed to Indigenous reconciliation. We're committed to diversity and inclusion. Uh, We're committed to mental health uh, in the workplace. And when I talk about mental health in the Middle East, no one is remotely interested and, and they don't even know what I'm talking about. When I talk about our commitment to mental health in Australia, it really resonates with our customers. When I talk about Indigenous reconciliation, our American customers and our Canadian customers love it. And it does make us stand out because there really isn't any other beef company in Australia or the world that is talking about Indigenous reconciliation and living and breathing it. And it actually does make a difference when we're pitching our product into key buyers in the US and Canada. The Indigenous reconciliation aspect of your business, can you go into that a little bit more? How um, how have you managed to integrate that into OB? Yep. So like all pastoralists that operate or, or agriculturalists that operate farms or farms in Australia, you're raising cattle or growing crops on land that was once traditionally owned or is still traditionally owned. And we recognise that. Uh, our producers have good relationships with traditional owners and we think it's important that we recognise that. And the way we do that probably uh, openly is on social media. Uh, over the last couple of years, we've done collaborations with various people in our supply chain and one collaboration that was really well received was with Mythica Aboriginal Corporation. So we source cattle from the tr- traditional lands of the Mythica people 
during our collaboration, they had the opportunity to put sort of 50, 30 to 50 photos. It's sort of like they take ownership of our Facebook, LinkedIn and, and parts of our website and they can put whatever content they want up. What they get is a platform of over 20,000 people on Facebook that have the opportunity to see their content and tell their story. And what we get is, I guess it's evidence that we take our commitment to traditional owners really seriously. Uh, we have a Reconciliation Action Plan Committee that has two Indigenous women on it. We meet with them every now and then and they're really uh, direct with the advice that they give me and I welcome it. And when I get it wrong, they tell me. And then when I get it right, um, they say, you know, you're, you're directionally correct. You're heading in the right direction, Delane. We think we're doing it pretty well and there's an opportunity for other people in agriculture to take similar steps in this direction. What do you think is the most, what do you think is one of your most unique aspects of OB and why Why organic? Why is that so important to people? Yeah, so I'm, I've described myself as an organic mum. I lived for Hong Kong in, I lived in Hong Kong for six years and when I was there, I was very specific about, I had two of my three children in Hong Kong and what I wanted to do was make sure that when I was feeding my children, I was feeding them food that wasn't from specific countries. So I didn't mind where else it was from. I didn't care that it was grown in Europe or Saudi Arabia, but I specifically didn't want it from certain countries. So I would spend a lot of time in the supermarket looking at the labels to make sure that it wasn't from certain countries. And my preference was always for certified organic so that probably came about when I had children and I wanted to keep my children safe. And I do believe what you put inside your bodies has an influence on the health, your health. Um, so I think the consumers that consume organic are either often new mums. They're often people that have been through cancer, to be honest. They've got cancer. Often it starts with the the female in the family that's had breast cancer. They're starting to explore how cancer might have come into their their bodies um they believe that it could have something to do with food and do we see them making a conscious choice away from conventional agriculture what makes our beef unique to to customers in australia and other parts of the world is the production region so, so the production region we're talking about is a channel country it's very very low rainfall just a couple of inches a year it's hard to believe that grass grows in that type of environment but we have droughts and flooding rain. So we can have a beautiful grass response without any rain as long as we've had a flood. The grass that grows there is unique. It's been growing for millennia, but it also hasn't had any, because it's so dry, there's been no intensive agriculture. So no one's come in, planted grass seed, irrigated it, and then put, put animals over to graze it. So humans haven't decided the diet of the animal. The best way to describe that is when you go to a gym, You'll see a variety of people in, in the gym. And when they finish their gym session, as they're walking out of the gym, some of them will be drinking water, some of them will be drinking Gatorade, some of them will be drinking Powerade. It's actually the same for animals. When animals are grazing, uh, if they're in a feedlot, it's a human that's decided their ration. If they're in a, a farm that's been had grass seed and had been irrigated, the farmer has decided what brand of grass seed they're going to put in their paddock and then what how much time the animals will spend in the paddock to consume the grass. Out in the channel country, uh, the animals choose their own diet. So if they want salt bush, they go and choose salt bush. If they want pepper grass, they want pepper grass. So that means that that the the beef has a unique flavour, but it has a unique flavour each time that you eat it. Wow. 
I love that. That's so so beautifully put. Doing so many of your policies as well around sustainability are so far ahead of the rest of the industry. What is it that inspires them and how do you sort of try to maintain your edge? So we're an SME. We don't have the budgets of some of our peers in the industry. Uh, I think we listen well and we, we do that through social media. We've been on social media for a long time and it, In our business, we sell to wholesalers. So we have sort of one customer in Sydney, one in Brisbane, one in Adelaide, one in California, one in Hong Kong. And we sell them pallets. We sell them tons of products. But they don't necessarily, then they on sell it to consumers, but they don't necessarily tell us that um, Sammy thought this and, and Joe thought that. So by listening, I mean that we have a big audience on social media and they tell us things. So we get messages from them all the time and um, that's really useful for us to understand what what people are interested in. The thing that most people are asking us about are vaccines. So there's people in the organic food community that are completely against vaccines, in particular in livestock. And I think they're really concerned about what's what's happening with, with vaccines. And so they're asking us lots of questions. How do you get around something like that, though? Because that's sometimes essential for the health of the cattle, isn't it? We give them the information that is truth. And there's a lot of, as you know, on social media, there's a lot of untruths that are spread on social media and they're spread like wildfire. So what's really important is that people are understanding that there are vaccines used in livestock in Australia. What that allows us to be is disease-free, which then allows us to supply clean and beef, uh, clean and green beef to consumers here in Australia and overseas. So there's a time and a place for vaccines, and um, that's what consumers are looking for. What they're looking for is to in- interact with the brand, and they're looking to get get a response to their questions in a timely manner. Often the question, the responses they're looking for are quite scientific, so we will try and point them to the direction of a federal or state government website so they can get the facts rather than the scaremongering that might be shared on social media. How do you see cattle being part of the environmental solution and not the problem? <laughs> uh, well, we have a lot of land in Australia that is uh, suitable for a lot of things, uh, but cattle production is one of the things that, a lot of land in Australia is suitable for because it's such low rainfall. So we could do nothing or we could raise livestock on on this land that really has low rainfall, which is a large part of Australia. Proteins needed uh, in societies all around all around the world. Australia is a net, net exporter of our beef protein, so we don't have enough humans in Australia or mouths in Australia for all of the protein that we're eating. Uh, there is a protein deficit in many countries around the world because for all sorts of reasons they can't produce enough uh, protein to feed their population. So we've got a really important role to play. Genetics are improving in Australia significantly or around the world and genetics are really important. So um, in the olden days when we had different genetics, I won't say worse, but they were different, it might have taken you a long time to fatten an animal uh, and now as the genetics have improved, um you fatten you can fatten an animal faster fertility is really important the steps that the industry has taken to improve fertility and what what i mean by that is that you're having the, the cow is having a calf all the time they're not um, having abortions or um, pregnancies that don't progress and that's because we're understanding we're understanding about disease we're understanding about nutrition in herds so we're making so much progress in that we can do more with less 
do you just love being part of this industry? I mean, you seem to always be thinking of the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Is that something that you just love in your role? Well, I've got a hobby and it's to influence government policy. And we have very, very smart bureaucrats that work in our capital cities and in Canberra. Uh, they're influenced by lots of things. Uh, often their life experience is limited to capital cities and so they don't necessarily have the perspective of regional Australia. Uh, many of the the policies that the government has in place are very logical and some of them are not. And so when I see things that really are not logical or that there's a simple fix or that there's a fix that won't cost the government or the economy too much money, then I quite enjoy spending my time trying to convince the government to do things differently or invest in, in, in different ways of doing business. I spend a lot of time at, at the trade end rather than the farm end of our supply chain. So we don't own land or livestock. Our producers raise livestock and they do that really well. We take ownership of the animal at the process, processing facility. And so we get involved from the processing facility uh, when they go on aeroplanes and the boxes go on aeroplanes and boats to customers around the world. And there are a lot of technical trade barriers. What that means is we might see an opportunity in somewhere like Singapore and think we'll just put a ton of meat on a on a plane to Singapore. But there are lots of things that get in the way and they're called technical trade barriers. And some of those can be easily negotiated by our bureaucrats away and some of them are more complicated. So it's really important that exporters like us are giving our bureaucrats in our capital cities, all the information they need to do the best negotiating on our behalf. And as I said, that's really important because we're a net exporter of most agricultural commodities in Australia. We just don't have enough humans here to eat all the the green beans and the um, soy and the, the meat that we're producing and the lamb. So we really need to have access to all these markets around the world so that we can realise the value in agriculture in Australia. You guys do a lot of advocacy work at OB as well as having a big focus on mental health within the business, which you touched on briefly before. Uh, what work are you doing in this space? Yeah, it's a real focus of ours and it, I don't know, it ha has happened sort of organically. We're committed to continuing professional development and I go to lunch and learns. So that's in the city. If you work in the city like I do, you get invited to things and you go listen to someone talk about something at lunchtime. And I heard a lady who was a survivor of a suicide attempt. So she had attempted suicide off a bridge in Brisbane and she'd the only person to ever, ever survive that. And she spoke about her journey and I was, found it really interesting. I was in the audience and she said she went from being um, normal in inverted commas to suicidal within 24 to 48 hours. And I found it extraordinary that I or you, Sammy, could be coping or, or be perfectly fine today and then wanting to commit suicide within 24 to 48 hours. And I thought to myself, I need to go back to the office and do something about this. If that's going to happen to every one of us in my office at some stage, potentially, I need to make sure we've got people around us that can intervene early. And so that set us on a journey to some training. The Queensland government offers free training of four hours around mental health. And we've now offered other additional training. It's called Mental Health First Aid. It's a two-day course. And almost all of our team have done that. And you become an accredited mental health first aider. And what that means is that you can provide, you can point people in the right directions and you can know the signs 
almost weekly in my role here at Obi, uh, I use my mental health training and it's often because I know the signs. So I, I might, it's often with men, I'll be talking to a man on the phone, how are you going? And he'll say, oh, it's been tough this week. My wife's X, Y, Z and my kids are X, Y, Z and and they're just signs when it's not really the wife that's the problem, it's that the man's not coping with whatever situation he's found himself in and I know where to point them. I know that this guy's probably not going to want to call Lifeline but he might call TIACS, which is this is a conversation starter. So there are all these different um, phone numbers that you can call. There's a line just for Indigenous people. So if I know they're Indigenous, I'm going to suggest they call that hotline instead of Lifeline. I've actually called Lifeline myself um, for a bit of a chat because I'm into trying all this stuff out. And I was, interestingly, Sammy, on hold. And I wasn't in a suicide situation. I just wanted to chat to someone to find out what it was like to call Lifeline. And I waited on hold for half an hour and didn't get through. And it's probably the best thing I've ever done in that I realised now when I encourage people to call Lifeline, I, I manage their expectations and say, listen, you've been brave enough to call Lifeline. You've never done it before. You're a bloke in ag. But if you need to wait half an hour, that's completely normal. Please don't hang mm. up. So it's really important that we've got lived experience with not only telling people that they may need help but if you've actually tried to call the services yourself you understand that it's not perfect um, there are a lot of services available often we're criticized in agriculture in Australia because we allegedly don't provide enough mental health services there actually are a massive amount of services that are available there's more during nine to five working hours but there are a massive amount of services available for people that find themselves in adverse mental health situations, but we don't have any muscle memory. We don't know how to call it. We're too shame. We think that we shouldn't call Lifeline because we're not suicidal. We're only having a bad day or we've got a hangover, so we don't want to call Lifeline. We think that we should reserve Lifeline for the people that want to kill themselves, whereas that's not – when you've had the training, we really need people to call these services, go to your doctor – uh, speak to people who've had this training well before you get to a point where you uh, feel like you've you've got only a few options left. What has the response been from that within your team and also, you know, people that you might just be speaking to on the phone? Well, Sammy, as you can tell, I'm reasonably blunt. <laughs> <laughs> no. And also in life, people are not going to ring you up and tell you, you your advice, say, you saved their life. Like, we as humans, we don't often throw about throw about thanks very much. I can be comfortable in that I've had a lot of training. I continue to invest in training my team. And, you know, selfishly, Sammy, if I find myself in that situation, I want my people in this office to know the signs. I want them to point me in the right direction. But equally, we all have children. I've got three children, a 13-year-old, a 10-year-old, an 8-year-old. If they ever find themselves in a really difficult situation where they're considering suicide, I want people around them. We need more people in our community. It, you call it selfish, uh, whatever. Um, I also am passionate about helping women. <laughs> I've got a real focus on diversity and inclusion. I've got a really soft, soft spot for single mums. Um, it's really tough out there for single mums. Um, and women particularly working women, they sometimes forget about things like going to the GP, having blood tests, having mammograms, 
and so I don't mind giving women a bit of advice saying, oh, you're over 50, have you had a mammogram yet? And oh, too busy, I'm from Western Queensland, there's no mammograms out where I live. And I say, oh, have you ever been to Longreach? You know, have you ever been to Roma? <laughs> have you ever been to a capital city? Oh, yeah, well, I went there for the NRL grand final. Okay, well, you could have had your mammogram then. Oh, well, Delane, you don't understand. So I do understand and I know that if we keep up as women with our annual blood tests, if we have our mammograms, um, if we understand that once you get to 40, you've got to start doing things. Once you get to 50, you've got to start doing things. If you've got a family history of bowel cancer, then start having those colonoscopies nice and early. And sometimes you do need to be nudged in the right direction. We all think we're very busy and important, but uh, we can make times we, we can make time for some things. We just need sometimes help prioritising what's important. A little push from Delane. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> now, you've been awarded the Member of the Order of Australia for significant service to the beef industry and to professional organisations. You're obviously in a very significant role, which brings its own trials. Can you tell me some of the challenges that you've faced over the years? Certainly. I think, uh, well, I've had three children in a male-dominated industry. Fortunately, I have, you know, I had a supportive team around me and a supportive board that allowed me to have some time off. I didn't take too much time off. I know most women these days look to have that six or 12 months off. I, I wasn't one of those. I did come back to work a little bit earlier than that. Uh, I continue to often be the only woman in the room. I was lucky enough to be invited to a state government event um, for the beef industry here in Queensland last month. And other than the females who work for the Queensland government, which were on one side of the boardroom table, there was, you know, no no other women in the room. Uh, when the, the government bureaucrats came up to me afterwards and they said, what, what can we do about this? And I said, well, you're only invited the CEO and the CFO. And 100% of the time, they're men in the industry. So you're going to have to start inviting other people. And they said, oh, well, we can only have two people per company. And I said, well, ask them to bring an observer. I said, they said, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, put the CEO and the CFO around the boardroom table and then have another row of chairs at the back where um, the observer sits, where they don't say anything, but they get the feel for turning up to these events, having to network and things like that. Um with regards to diversity inclusion, it's not just about gender. I think we've got a lot of issues with ensuring that we hear from the voices of people of colour and people from linguistically diverse backgrounds. I speak a few different languages. Um, in my team, we have someone from Mexico, from the Philippines and from China. I think we speak five or six languages in our office. Um, we're better off overall because of it. Our customers love engaging with people other than Caucasian Australians, believe it or not, Southeast Asians love engaging with people that look and sound like them. Um, we can do a real, uh, we, we really need to do and can do a better job in getting women, but also people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds and people of colour into um, into events, sit around boardroom tables and eventually we'll get to a point where they're confident enough to speak up and we've got a cohort of people that understand that they're, what they have to tell us is really important. And, I mean, especially when, you know, companies exactly like you guys, you're exporting to all sorts of different countries. You do need that diversity within your own country 
in order to be able to serve them properly as well. Yeah, our focus, probably my focus at the start of my career was on diversity and inclusion from a gender point of view. But in recent times, I've come come to understand that we're making progress in that space, but now there's so much more we, that we can do to get the perspective of people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. That includes Indigenous and Torres Strait Islanders, but it's not limited to Indigenous and Torres Strait Islanders. Uh, and it doesn't have to be around the boardroom table. You can have a Reconciliation Action Plan Committee or you can have other committees where people get to sit around an important table, give advice, give you their opinion. That empowers them. It helps them um, each time they do it, they get to craft their message a little bit better for it to be more compelling. And then when they do get to be around the boardroom table or on a government board where you're influencing government policy, they've sort of perfected the art of influence a little bit. And this is just a gender question, but what advice do you have for women starting out in the industry or who would like to be in one of those, you know, higher positions but maybe too intimidating? maybe too intimidated because it is such a male-dominated industry? Well, first of all, um, you probably, if you're young and female, it's it's unlikely you'll be invited to some of these big events. So if you find out they're on, you could try and get an invite <laughs> or you could try and just be invited to the pre-dinner drinks and say, I only want to come for that first hour of pre-dinner drinks and then I'll let you go and sit at the important tables. The other thing I'd say is, if you get invited, you have to say something. Time and time and time again, um, I see young women with something to say, but they get into a room and they don't know how to. Uh, they get nervous, but more or not not nervous, but they don't know how to 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 get their message across. And the other thing I'd say is there's lots of surveys that come out now, and I have um, a, a habit of filling in every survey. So any survey that anyone sends, whether it's about health, mental health, diversity, inclusion, um, agriculture, what I eat, you name it, I will fill it in. And 100% of the time, I or the business will get benefit from that. It's extraordinary, but it's human nature for people to get surveys and feel that they're too busy to fill it in. So imagine... There's hundreds of surveys that come out from state and federal government or peak industry bodies or your local community asking your opinion about stuff and you're too busy or you felt that you've told them already and so you don't want to tell them again. But my recommendation would be to tell people there's not very many people that do and it usually leads to other opportunities um, down the track. Mm. Yeah, you're right because not many people do fill the surveys out. So if you're one of the people that is filling it out, then hopefully your recommendations are noticed. Yeah, health is a good one. So if someone's doing a survey around health in your community and you've potentially had a good experience or it's often a bad experience that you want to tell someone about, like I tried to get an appointment with a gynecologist and it took me four months, many bureaucrats don't know that because they all live in the city. So you need to, to say, I live in this community, this is my only option for gynecologist. And I couldn't get it. And because of that, I had this adverse adverse outcome. They don't have these case studies. Like no one's going to – GPs are too busy to to tell the state government that they had six adverse outcomes because they couldn't refer the their patient on to who they needed to. It, it It's really the patient and as painful as it is, um, 
we, we need to, we need to tell the people that are asking the good stuff, but we also need to tell them what hasn't worked out. And even better, if you've got some, some solutions that people haven't thought of, then do you take the time to put it into the survey or or send an email? So there are there's a lot of smarts in our rural communities. There are a lot of solutions, and we can feel like we've we've done it to death and we've told every bureaucrat that's been to our community what the issue is and how they should fix it, but we need to to keep doing it because we can make a difference. Now, where to next for Obi? Have you got grand plans in your in your sights? Yeah. So COVID knocked us around a little bit, I have to say. We were exporting to a lot of countries, big volumes. And then COVID hit and we lost we lost access to those markets. So we couldn't, there were no planes flying that we could put our beef on and there were no boats calling in Australia that we could put our meat on. Uh, so we had to pivot and put a lot of our volume onto the domestic market. There's green shoots now. Um, and so we're focused on getting the volume back into some of our key export markets. Our largest market is the United States. And that's because... 100% of the manufactured products in organic beef are made in the US. So if you go to the US and buy an organic pizza that has beef mints on it, that mints would have been ground in the US. If you buy an organic burger, that burger would have made been made in the US. If you buy an organic meatball, that organic mints would have been ground in the US to go into the meatball. So 100% of the manufactured organic beef products happen in the US which is where all of our product goes into that system. And then it might go elsewhere around the world, but it goes to the US first. Uh, and also into Southeast Asia. So we've got, we see a lot of opportunities in places like Indonesia. We've got rising middle class in other parts of Southeast Asia. We've got freight coming back. So it's cheaper now to export freight than, sorry, to send product by air than it was a few years ago. So real focus on putting the volumes back into those export markets while continuing to um, serve our customers here in Australia and also listening. So customers are very focused on sustainability um, and our sustainability is across four key pillars, people, the animals, environment and product. And for a business that doesn't own land or livestock or a processing facility, we still need to be seen to be taking steps towards being more sustainable. How Delene finds time to do it all is a mystery to me. She's an amazing role model and mentor, and I hope you enjoyed hearing her wonderful story. That's all from me today. Stay well, and I'll be back next week with another tale from somewhere around Australia. Mm-hmm.